Good morning, everybody. Let's pray together now as we begin. Father, <clears throat> we ask you in Jesus' name to enlighten our minds and open our hearts to what it is that you want us to hear today from your word and uh, what you want us to know from this text. Uh, these are sins that we all know too well. In fact, embarrassingly so. The, the, the issues that are in here relate to all of our lives. There is not a single person here this morning, Father, who in one way or another, including myself, can't see themselves in this text, and so we need your help to help us know what application we need to take away from this today. Lord, more than anything else, the Spirit of the living God is able to apply the Word in ways that I cannot. And so would you help our hearts to be ready? We even now just say, Jesus, we open our hearts to what we want, what you want to put into our souls today. We have a heart ready to receive your Word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, about a year and a half ago at our old house in Fenville, I decided that um, this room over top of our garage that was unfinished since we built the house needed to be finished. You have one of those projects that just kind of taunts you. You know, Every day you walk by, it's like, nah, 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 nah. It was like one of those projects. And I, Sarah and I decided, you know, let's just get after this project and get it done. It was a bonus room over top of the house, and um, everything was done in, in as far as the framing, the insulation, and all that stuff, but um, the, the time next in the project was to hang drywall, okay? So how many of you have ever hung drywall yourself? Okay, good. How many of you are idiots? Raise your hands. No, okay, so the reality is that's a job you need to hire out, just so you know, okay, because I learned this the hard way when I had to put this uh, drywall up. But we thought, you know what, we'll save a little bit of money, and uh, we'll, we'll do it ourselves. And so uh, I calculated how many sheets of drywall I needed, no less than 30, and uh, so I... Um, um, which is interesting because the house had already been built, so I had to lug 30 sheets of drywall up through the winding staircase up to the second floor. Yeah, that was fun. And uh, we decided, though, we're going to do this, and so we took the whole family to Lowe's one night to load up this drywall. We get the cart, you know, it's all this big, burly cart. We go down to the drywall section, and our kids are helping me, you know, load up the cart. And this is a great family experience at this time. It's going really well. And... <laughs> It's just a lot of fun. We're laughing and having a good time. And, and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. We're getting drywall. Nobody's sinned yet. And it's just been wonderful. And so we, we check out. We're on our way to, to out to the car. I pull the van up. we got this trailer. And um, I start loading sheets of drywall with my wife, right? And you know that little adage that says, if you can wallpaper together, you're going to have a great marriage? That's nothing compared to loading drywall together, okay? And, and one of the things that's funny about our relationship is that um, for whatever reason, remember how last week I talked about things that activate my flesh? Well, one of the things that activates my flesh really quickly is when we try and move heavy furniture together. It just doesn't work. It's our height difference. Um, we have about the same strength differential, but the reality is um, we just can't carry things very well. And so invariably, when we get ready to move something heavy, my wife will say, okay, you ready? Ready? She, you're not going to get angry with me, right? right. So, so, so we're trying to move this drywall, and it's not going well. It's just, it's just not. I'm getting frustrated. We're dropping it. It's getting nicked. The kids are, you know, running around the, the, the trailer, woo, 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 you know. And finally, I just said, all right, everyone in the car. I'm just going to do it myself. Smart. So I'm lugging this drywall and trying to get it out. And this stuff is heavy, right? And I can't do it. And the kids are all in the car, my wife, and they're like, you know, looking and watching and probably snickering a little bit. And all of a sudden, this guy pulls up in this truck. And he, 
stops right next to me, and I'm like, oh, who is this, you know? And so I'm putting this drywall, and this guy steps out of the car, and he says, can I help you, sir? Which is actually a really kind thing to say, because what he probably should have said was, apparently you need some help, right? So he jumped out, and, and he starts loading the drywall on, and it's like five minutes. Beautiful. It's done, I, and uh, it, it's all set. And then I have to get back in the car, right? So I'm walking up, and I get inside the car, and I sit down, and I sigh. And you know those like few moments of awkward silence when it could tip between conviction and not? Remember that? About that? Well, from the back of our car, one of my sons said, Dad, you suppose that guy that pulled up was a Christian? And what I wanted to ask him was, are you saying something? You know what I mean? That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> But I said, I don't know, son, why? And he said, because, boy, he sure acted like a Christian, didn't he? It's an insightful little comment from a nine-year-old boy that Christians do things that are remarkable. They, they act in such a way that the evidence of their belief in Christ makes them different than other people around them. In fact, can I remind you, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that those who know Jesus have a remarkable difference in their demeanor, in their conduct, in their actions, and also in their attitudes. You ought to be the one in your office place that people know can help resolve conflict, not make them. You ought to be the one in your office that people know won't unnecessarily take an offense, and you won't hold a grudge. In fact, if anyone in the office is first to say they're wrong, it's you. That ought to be the mark of a believer. Why? Here's why. Because the new man, the person who's been redeemed by Christ, the new self, with Christ at the core, or Christ at the center, he or she lives a remarkably different life. A remarkably different life. Meaning, because of who I am in Jesus, and because of my relationship with Christ, the way in which I express that results in a life that looks really different than the world. Remember, Jesus called his disciples to be salt and light. To be able to be radically different than their culture. A follower of Jesus with Christ in the center will evidence him or herself in our world in remarkably different ways. Our text that we're looking at this morning is Colossians 3. And you'll remember that Jesus-centered living involves three different imperatives. Last week we saw what it means to put certain things to death. And this week we're looking at what it means to put certain things away. And then next week we're going to look at what it means to put certain things on. And the whole point of this section is, if Christ is the center of the universe, remember we don't make him core, he is core. We don't make him center, he is center. We don't make him Lord, he is Lord. If that's true, then the way that we would express that is that Jesus being in the center of our lives, being the focal point of our hearts, means that we see life radically differently. Such that people around you would ask, what is so different about you? And the answer would be Jesus. So the new man, the new self, what what exactly is this new self? This morning, I want to just dive into what are the characteristics of this new self and call you to be this kind of people. At the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity for you even to respond Some of you last week felt the call to put sin to death in new ways in some big areas like sexual immorality and impurity and I intentionally didn't give you any opportunity to respond beyond our counselors up here and at the end of this service we're actually going to play an old hymn, I Surrender All and invite you just to come here and kneel and say, Lord, 
Anger's got to go. Gossip's got to go. Because what we're going to talk about this morning, beloved, are respectable sins. The kind of sins that wreak havoc on the church and families and relationships, but the kind of sins that we tend to tolerate. And we're also going to see that Paul calls us to continue to grow in Christ-likeness, and also that he calls us to love people who are different than us, who love Jesus and say, our unity is in Christ. So first here, the new man characteristic is this, that we put away sins that hurt people. It's remarkable here that the, the chief characteristic, it seems, in this new self or this new man is that people who treasure Christ at the center of their lives live for Christ, not themselves. Do you realize that that is the fundamental difference between you and people who do not know Christ? When you came to Christ, you were living for yourself. You had all these sins that fed the soul, fed the heart. And when you come to Christ, you relinquish control of your heart. You said, I gave up, or as sometimes I've said it, that you give up your right to be your own God. That you see that you're so done with you and the ways that you do your life. And you've decided to pledge your allegiance to Christ. You've given your life to Him. He's created within you a new heart and life. And the radical difference is that now you see life through a different lens. A Jesus-centered lens. Verse 8 builds on what we learned last week in verses 5 to 7. I don't know about you, but that idea of intentional atrophy has really been helpful for me. Really helpful. If you weren't here last week, let me just give you a quick cliff note summary of what that is. A little phrase earlier on in, in uh, verse 8, uh, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. We said that that really relates to an idea called intentional atrophy. In other words, let the flesh grow weaker and weaker by lack of use. Let it become as good as dead even though it's still there. Let it become inoperable by making it weaker and weaker. So stop exercising the flesh. That was the command. In short and simple ways, stop lifting five-pound flesh weights and instead tell your flesh to sit down, be quiet, you're not going to rule and reign over me anymore. Building on that, verse 8 takes the next step. And, And here's where this is really important because you could have been here last week and the list of sins that we dealt with were primarily sexual sins. They're biggies. They're, they're things that we know have serious consequences and are rather abhorrent. But the list that we have in front of us here are respectable sins. Sins that we tend to hmm, tolerate. Sins that we tend to not take so seriously. And yet these sins, we have all seen their terrible effects on homes, lives, families. Respectable sins like anger and wrath and malice and slander, obscene talk and lying. These are the things that are also defiling the name of Christ. These are the things that that create division in homes, that make people look at church as an unsafe place. That they, they, they look at, man, this is the way Christian people act. This is the way lost people act. They all talk the same. This list also needs to go outside of the church. Would you agree? And yet these are the sins that are too easy for us to tolerate. These are the sins that are respectable. Hmm. The list begins with the word anger. It's the Greek word orge. It comes from a root word which means to reach after or to long after. It's to want something with a strong desire or passion, and it gets elevated. It's sort of like when I'm driving the car and Savannah drops her ginky. 
That's her blanket. And she goes, Ginky Daddy? And I can't, I, I can't get it, Savannah. Ginky Daddy? Can't get it, Savannah. Ginky Daddy? <laughs> I can't get it, Savannah. Ginky Daddy! I mean, that's, but then I'm like, all right, all right, all right. I can't stand it anymore, right? So her longing, right, creates a longing in me, right? So that's what it's a reach for, a grab for. The, 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 in a positive sense, the, the word means um, passion or strong desire, like God's desire for his own judgment, his own righteousness. In Romans 12, 19. could also describe believers who have righteous anger, who would be angry and not sin. However, be careful with this verse. That anger is not anger related to defense of you, it relates to a indignation over the offense against God. So be wary about finding a new respectability with your anger and then slapping a Bible verse on it and say, well, I was angry but I didn't sin. And the reality is, yes, you did, you just sinned twice. <laughs> you were both angry and you were hypocritical. So how's that, right? So what does it mean? Well, also, by the way, fathers, this is something we're not supposed to create in our children instead we're to be slow to anger because it doesn't accomplish the righteousness of god james 1 19 and 20 great passage quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger why because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of god the word means a settled or abiding condition of the mind with a view towards revenge or punishment it's this idea that you just got this settled heart that's just angry and it seeks to punish, get even, or in some cases even take the place of God. It's the heart condition behind when someone says, hey, do you know so-and-so? And you say, mm-hmm, I know them. And they're like, what? I'm not saying a word. And you have, right? That's, it's this settled condition. This, you see someone walking in the hallway and you're immediately defensive. You, you see an email, whoop, comes up and you're like, what now? That's, that's anger. It comes from a desire to want control. You don't want them to bug you. You don't want them to offer a suggestion. You don't want that. You don't want to answer the question, "Why, mommy?" Again, you don't want to have to give an account for what you're doing. You just want people to leave you alone. And at the heart of anger is this desire to have control. We want to be mini gods, and that's why we get angry. And anger works. So we'll talk about it in a moment. Unfortunately, it works. Wrath, wrath is the word thumos. It differs from anger in that it appears to be more emotional and explosive. It, it denotes a violent movement. It means to boil up or to smoke. Thumos is the fury of anger, like in Revelation 16, 19. You could compare it to a teapot in your house. You have one of those? Put some water on the stove and it starts to boil, right? And that gurgling, gurgling, gurgling sound, that's anger. That's orge. It's just kind of there. And thumos is, all it takes is a little turn of the degrees, a little bit warmer or a little bit more time, and that little kettle is going to move from gurgling, gurgling, gurgling to... 
right? And that's how some of you are. There's this gurgling, 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 and all it takes is one more little event, and the temperature goes up, and you're... And your kids are like, Look out, Dad's going to blow! <laughs> and the reason we laugh is because we know that's true. That's how life is. Gurgle, 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 and then... Thumas, it comes out. And what Paul is saying here is these things have to go. we got to take these things that are in our lives, in our hearts... This penchant for anger, this penchant for wrath, and we need to remove it far from us. This stuff, like the other sins, need to be put away. Next, malice. Mm. Comes from the word meaning evil. It's translated as trouble, like tomorrow has enough trouble of its own in Matthew 6.34. It refers to actions or attitudes that cause disruption or relationship tension. It's the deliberate intent to harm someone. You just have it out for them. You're sick of them. And therefore, malice. The next word, slander. Here's the Greek word, blasphemia. Hear the word blasphemy there? It's speech that is intended to harm, to injure, to defame, to disparage, to revile. Gossip is in this category. Malice is the motive. You want to do people harm, but slander is the action. And slander, gossip, and defaming are, unfortunately, sins that we're all too familiar with, aren't we? But I only speak stuff that's true, Mark. (laughs) You realize that slander can be true. Gossip can be true. You've just said it to the wrong person. Kind of the definition for gossip would be, is this person part of the problem or the solution? If not, there's no reason to talk about it. Listen to Titus 3 and verse 2. Here's a command. Speak evil of no one. Wow. That's a command. Speak evil of no one. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? That means speak evil of no one. Try putting that on for a week. Make a decision. I will speak evil of no one and see how challenging that really is. See, these sins, we got to work on them because these are intramural sins in the church, aren't they? In fact, um, one of my pastor friends once said this. He said, Mark, you can tell a lot about what people think of you by how their kids treat you. You know why that is? Because your kids are listening in the car on the way home from church. They're listening at the dinner table. right? And kids pick up on attitudes and actions and words, and they pick up on what mom and dad really think about people by just simply listening. Reminds me of a little girl one time that um, was helping her mom get ready for a dinner party. I can't remember if I told you this story before. Have I told you this story before? Little girl dinner party, mom's trying to clean up, remember? Okay, well, it's good anyway, so even if you had, just get over it. So um, this this girl is helping her mom clean up from dinner, and they're hurrying and screaming around. They're having people over for dinner that night. It's really stressful, really stressful. So she's trying to do everything she can do to help. Finally, they have the guests in, and... And little Susie, will call her, is around the table. And mom says, Susie, why don't you pray for our meal tonight? And she goes, oh, mommy, I, would, I don't know what to pray. And she says, oh, you, just pray whatever you've heard mommy pray. Really? <laughs> just, just pray whatever mom, you hear mommy pray. Okay. Lord, why did we have all these people over tonight? <laughs> Be careful what you say. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander. Next, obscene talk. What's this? This is um, filthy communication, a dirty joke, defiling conversation, or abusive speech. It can be either or. In other words, Paul is condemning speech that creates a moral or relational defilement. Lying, what's this? You don't need a definition. It's just simply not telling the truth. It's deceptive speech, conversation that doesn't capture the entire reality of what is happening. And you know what the problem is with this list when we look at it? The problem is that you, these sins are not new. you not, oh, I didn't know anger was a sin. Oh, thanks, Mark. So helpful. I didn't know that gossip was wrong. <laughs> I just didn't know. You know. That's not the problem. We know this stuff shouldn't be a part of our life. And yet we tolerate it. These are little respectable sins. So what does Paul say about this list? Well, the other things he said, put these things to death. Intentional atrophy. What about this list? This list is, is to be put off. To put off as the same nuance as to put to death in the sense that it relates to an event that happened in the past that now creates a settled attitude in the present. Meaning, because of my relationship with Christ, and because of what He set me free from, and because of the the dynamics of the Spirit within me, therefore I am to put on new conduct and behavior, but that new conduct and behavior begins with a settled determination that these things right here I'm not going to do anymore. So when I look at the, the, the wardrobe, so to speak, to use our analogy from the skit, when I look at the wardrobe of what I could put on in a conversation... I don't put these things on anymore, and here's why. Because these clothes don't fit. They don't fit. They relate to the old man, the old ways, the old patterns, all the old stuff. This is my past. This is the old me. This is the old stuff. This is the stuff that Jesus died for to set me free from. And so every time I put it back on, it's like I'm going retro, and it's not very attractive. Let me give you an example. My parents are here this, uh, this weekend, and I asked them to bring something with them. And uh, this is a blast from my past. You ready? Here it is. Check this bad boy out. This is a varsity jacket from Camels of Christian High School Yeah, back in uh, 1989. Right? That's when I graduated from high school. You can do the math. And uh, this is hanging in a closet. And uh, do they still make these things? Yeah? They're pretty popular still? Uh, okay, guess not. Okay, so that's good. So, Well, check this out. I, uh, my kids were cracking up last night when I put this thing on. So, remember I told you how I grew so much to my junior and senior year? Yeah, now you're gonna... I bought this when I was a junior. Well, that's just not coming around anymore, is it? Okay, so, yeah. It's pretty stylish, don't you think? Check me out, you know? It's good, Jermaine, isn't it? Huh? It's good, huh? So yeah, so Friday night I took my wife out on a date. Imagine me walking downtown Indianapolis like this. Yeah, so that's cool. <laughs> Could you imagine? I mean, people would be like, what is his deal, man? He is so living in the past, right? You know, check me out. Played varsity basketball. That's right. High school, 1989, right? So <laughs> it'd be like, come on, man, get a life, right? That's old school. This is the old you. This doesn't fit. I'd no more wear this in college. I wouldn't wear it today. Why? Because everything about this is related to my past. I'm so beyond that, right? And the reality is what happens, folks, is that when we put on things like anger and wrath and malice, slander, obscene talk and lying, what we're doing is we're putting on the old clothes of our past. 
And while a varsity jacket might look kind of silly, this stuff looks sick. We need to take these things and say, no more. No more of this. We need to do war with anger and wrath and malice in our homes. We need to tell our kids, look, that little outburst, that just wasn't a a, a little thing. That's a serious sin. And we don't talk that way and act that way. We need to model that for our kids. Because these sins are to be put away because they don't fit. The new man puts away sins that hurt people. So my question would be this. In your home and in your office, in your neighborhood... What are you known for? Are you known as a person who's a great reconciler? Are you known as a man or a woman who's able to take a blow, so to speak, from someone who's getting after you? Or are you known as a hothead, quick-tongued, fast temper? And you think, wow, that's just the way I was raised. No, that's the way you were born. And it's called sin. And it's time to put it away and say, no more, no more. We need to put away sins that hurt people or the, the people in our world will look at the church and say, what's so different about you? The second characteristic is this, is that we grow progressively into the image of Christ. Look at, look at the second characteristic, verse 9. It says, do not lie to one another. And then here comes this, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. And notice the characteristic there which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So the new self is characterized by this renewal into knowledge of the image of the creator. So we're progressing in our understanding of what it means to be made more like Christ. This new self is different in three ways. The first is this. It means that the heart is permanently changed. And oh, how I want to be able to get this into your minds and remind you of this as often as I can, that coming to Christ means that He changed the orientation of your soul. Where once you were filled with love of self and all you could think about was you, Jesus comes in and He takes you out of the picture, puts Him in the middle and says, sit down, Mark, I'm in charge. And thank God He did that. Because I was making a mess of my life. And Jesus comes and He takes over my heart and then He changes the orientation of my soul such that now I love God and I love Jesus and I love other people and those desires and emotions trump my love for self. And it is this fundamental longing within my heart to fan that into flame more and more. So my heart has been permanently changed and when the choir saying, He's wonderful, hallelujah, You know, it's running through my soul. It's that He changed what I couldn't. Because I can change my outward behavior for a little bit. I can change my appearance. I can change my actions for a little time, about six weeks. But Jesus changes people completely, entirely, and wholly. The heart has been permanently changed. So then what happens next? So then we grow in incremental steps. Which is really important to understand because, like I said last week, we are all in process. There are no perfect people at College Park Church. We are all progressing in our understanding of what it means to be like Jesus. But here's the thing. We are growing, and God is doing it to us, but it's happening continually. So we are in a lifetime of continual progression. Which means that you should be more spiritual today than you were last week. You should be more spiritual today than you were last year. And there should be incremental steps of righteousness and progressing sanctification in your life. 
doesn't mean you have to be perfect. And we're not calling you to some sort of perfectionism, but I am calling you to progressive sanctification. And to be serious about it. And not just hear another sermon and walk away say, great, and then do zero. Instead to say, how do I then respond? Some of you here today, you've never received Christ. You have tried and tried and tried and tried. And the reason that nothing is working is because the orientation of your will, the orientation of your heart has not been bent to Christ. And until it is, you will never truly change. The message of the gospel is that there is power in Christ to change what you cannot. And then finally, the goal of this progressive sanctification is to be like Jesus. Remember, our mission as a church is to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. So what happens is that we grow in our understanding of what it means to be Christ-like. So the ultimate objective for me is not just to be a good husband or father. As valiant and as important as that is, my goal is to be Christ-like. It is so that I could put on the very person and nature and to be emblematic of who Jesus is. The reason that that's important, that Christ is our objective, is that there are a lot of non-Christian people who can change their lives. And they're very interested in change. And they go to therapy for change. And they can find ways to improve their marriage. They can find ways to take care of anger for a season. And there are a lot of people who can change their lives. But the reality is that kind of change isn't pleasing to God. And the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is not always just the external behaviors. It is primarily an issue of what your ultimate goal is. Because there's a lot of people who simply want better marriages and better kids. There's people who want to be able to know, how do I conduct myself in a marketplace so that I don't create more tension? There's a lot of books out there on stuff like that. But the unique message of the Bible and the gospel is this. Jesus is the goal. To be Christ-like is the objective. And when He becomes central in your heart and life, all of those things, those external changes, they come and they last because you have the power of Christ within you. The reason all that is important is because there are some of you who have come to church desperate because you want to change. But the question would be, what do you want to change into? And the problem is, is that some of you, once you change into that, oh, I want my marriage to be better. And once you get that, you will be gone. Or you will simply say, thank you very much, counselor. I got what I needed. You fixed my marriage and you will leave. And if getting a better marriage is your only goal, you will be sorely disappointed. Because sometimes we like to use the Bible to get what we want. And God will not be your lackey for your marriage or your family or your finances or your life. He is Lord, not your lackey. So anger, wrath, and slander need to be put off because we want to be like Jesus. And we need to pursue Christ-likeness. And why that is such an important goal is because, listen, anger, slander, and wrath, they will work for a season. If your season is well, or if, if your reason for change is, well, these things are creating problems, that's one reason. But that reason won't last you over the long haul. The reason you need to get hard after sins like anger and wrath and slander and lying is because these things don't make you like Christ. And if you're like, well, I'm not sure that's a really big goal. I'm not sure that's a really big deal. Then you ought to take a really careful look at what's on the inside of your heart. 
Winning the battle with anger and wrath and slander is won by a longing to be like Christ. And the new self, the new man, is characterized by incremental growth into becoming more like Jesus. And my question is this. How are you doing in that incremental growth thing? Be encouraged. There's no one perfect. But also be warned. God, by his spirit and his word, must lead to incremental growth or something is really wrong. And maybe today, at the end of our service, you just come up to the front and just say, Lord, I'm here because I just, the incremental growth thing, it's like stagnant. And I just want to say, give me a new desire. You ever had that before where you just don't desire? God can take care of that too. The psalmist says, incline my heart to thee, O Lord. It says, unite my heart to fear your name. I love that because my heart is like, do, 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 right? And I'm praying, God, take my heart and and unite it. Yes, Lord, help my wandering heart. Progressive Christ-likeness is the goal that Paul calls us to. And finally, he calls us to identifying with others through Christ. Here's an unusual place to put this in, but it's really important. This fits in Paul's logic, and I hope that you'll hear what he's saying. He says, verse 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Hear me, our identity and our unity is found in Jesus. So the new self the body of Christ is called to no longer categorize ourselves on race, on socioeconomic status, or culture. The Bible calls us to a single identity, one thing that defines us, Christ, in all and for all. The Bible calls us to this relentless passion of Christ, the Supreme One who is supreme over all and resident in the hearts of all those who know Jesus. And therefore, there is this beautiful unity that happens. I want you to understand the radical thing that Paul is saying here. Because his statement went cross-grain against the divisions of his day. The Jews and Greeks didn't worship together in the same place. They, They couldn't even eat in the same homes together. They couldn't even enter each other's houses. And the scandal of the gospel was when Christ came, he took all that stuff down. And he exalted himself over all of their divisions and said, Peter, kill and eat. And then sent him to the home of a Gentile person and said, do not call unclean what I have called clean. Circumcision was the defining mark of religious heritage. And as good as heritage and tradition is, we ought not to be divided up into the contemporary music crowd and the traditional music crowd. And this is what I like, this is what they like. And there's, so someone says, so what's College Park people like? It would just really disappoint me if we would say, well, there's these kind of people and these kind of people, and there's like this group and there's this group. But Paul says that should be the statement that flows from our lips is College Park is filled with a bunch of people who love Jesus. That's what it's about. So there's a a perspective here that we need to grab a hold of. The Greeks called called anyone who didn't speak Greek, they called him a barbarian. That's where the name comes from. 
So anybody doesn't speak Greek is a barbarian. Is barbarian a good term or a bad term? Bad term, right. And the only reason they call them barbarians is because they didn't talk like they did. And then Scythian? You know what a Scythian is? A Scythian is a lower degree of barbarian. In their plays and in their dramas, they were the folks who were made fun of because of their uncouth manners and their different speech. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. The distinction between slave and free meant the difference between a person who was viewed as a piece of property or somebody had real rights. And here's the thing, when they walked in the door of that assembly of people, they were all level at the foot of the cross. A slave would be leading in worship, reading the scripture, and a free man would be listening and taking instruction from him, and people would look at that and go, that is weird. And the reason why it was so weird and beautiful was because Christ was the defining mark of all of them. Now these barriers were a part of their culture and they still are a part of ours today. Our nation has made progress in this area, but it still shocks me that it was only one generation ago that there were separate seats on buses and separate schools and separate restaurants and separate drinking fountains. When I worked at a college in Grand Rapids, one of my responsibilities was to visit all of the churches in the Grand Rapids area, and I got to meet some of the best African-American pastors in the city and get to sit down and talk with them, and I had my eyes opened to the reality of what Paul is talking about here. Seated across the table was a man who had as many degrees as what I did, who came from a very different background but who loved Jesus just as much as I did and who helped me understand how he sees my world and how I was trying to see his. And it was a watershed moment. And I was never the same of this relentless passion to be sure that sins of racism and pride and exclusivity are not named in my home or in my heart or in my church. One of the things that I love about College Park is the, the beauty of the in-progress diversity of this body. I say that because I'm proud of where we've come, but I also think we've got a ways to go. And I want to call you today to understand and know that Christ lives in his people and his image of the church was this group of people from every tribe and every tongue who loved Jesus and they worshiped together they ate together their kids played together they wrapped their arms around each other and said man we are brothers in Christ and the world looks at that and says in a world that's divided you people love each other that is unbelievable and we say yes that's Jesus see it's not that we all talk the same it's not that we act the same or even look the same. That, that's a cult. <laughs> but what it does mean is that we have this love for one another because we're not all of the same, but the reality is we have a Lord and a King who is the same. And so that makes me your brother and you mine. Imagine with me two scenes one scene, a camera is situated outside of our auditorium, tape is rolling, and as the doors are opened, 
People walk through the doors and they all have the same clothes on. They all look the same. They talk the same and they walk the same. And the news photographer, as he takes his newsreel into the editing booth, shows his producer this video. And his producer, seeing the people coming out of the church, says, man, what's going on there? That's scary. Imagine another scene. Doors opening and people file out and there is this radical diversity. There are people from many skin colors, all kinds of walks of life, radically different backgrounds. He looks at the scene and he sees no commonality among them except they all emerge from the same building. And his question would be nearly the same. What's going on in there? But his statement would be radically different. That is beautiful. In the midst of a culture so divided, so fractured, so into schism and this group and this group and that group. What I want to call you today is to understand that part of being a new man, part of being the new self, is realizing that sins of of, of distancing from, from certain people because of the certain way that they are or because you're not comfortable with them, that stuff's got to go. And we got to say, you know Jesus, I know Jesus, come here, give me some. To those of you who are in the majority class of the ethnic and background of this church, if you think this is no big deal, let me encourage you to go away for one Sunday. And I'll give you a couple churches you can go to. And you walk in as the one or two only persons who have the same skin as you, and you tell me if it doesn't feel really uncomfortable. And therefore, what I call you today is to realize the beauty of what it means to be the body of Christ And for us to love each other and say, let's do ministry together and let our world know that there's something far beyond our wildest dreams that unites us. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, would be shocking to the world. The world would look at that and they would be shocked by our speech. They would say, my goodness, how you are different and how you conduct yourself. They would be shocked by our growth and how we change and let them be shocked by the way that we love one another, by the way in which this body of Christ wraps its arms around people from every background, every walk of life, rich and poor, white, black, Latino, who cares what color your skin is or your background in church, or your age, or your perspective on music, or your sense of what's really important in terms of tradition. And the one defining mark of this body is Jesus is all and in all. That's our pledge. See, he calls us to be new men and women. Calls us to have new words, new growth, and new love. See, this is what Jesus intended for the church to be. A group of people who, when Christ is in the center, they live radically different lives, and the world looks at them and says, My goodness, what is different about you people? And their answer is, Jesus. He changed our lives. He changes our church. He's changed my home. He's changed what I even see in the world. O risen Christ, help us as we apply this text to respectable sins and elements of division within our culture that just 
continue to break my heart. I thank you, Lord, for a a diversity here that's beautiful to me, but yet in process. And I pray that you would help us to grow in our love for one another, grow in our relationships with people who we may not even fully understand, but we love Jesus, right? And Lord, help us to put away things that are killing families in the church like wrath and anger and slander and obscene talk. Help us to put that stuff away. Thank you, Christ, that you are greater, more powerful than our past, our present, and our future. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.